socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, Oh, boy. Welcome to episode 98 of You Don't Have to Yell. We are creeping our way to the double digits, and it is your friendly neighborhood bod boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here with another installment for the politically exhausted majority. Now, you may remember a few episodes back when I spoke with Julian Goh at the University of Chicago about the historical origins of modern policing, and I promised that I'd be getting someone on from law enforcement to express their views. And to be fair, we've talked about the issue of police reform a lot on this podcast in the last two years and never had anybody from law enforcement. So it's a bit of a one-sided perspective, and I was very happy to book this episode's guest. Jesus Edicampa was raised by a single mom in his hometown of El Paso, Texas, where he went on to become the second highest ranking law enforcement official there. That's a city of one million people, folks. And from there, because that wasn't enough, he drove his family 11 hours east to Marshall, Texas, where he was tasked with bringing change to a police department that was not looking to do that. He has a new book out on the subject called Unmasking Leadership, What They Don't Tell You, which you can pre-order on his site, leadingthroughadversity.com. I can't tell you how happy I was to finally get the perspective of someone in law enforcement on everything that's happened over the last two years, and I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation as much as I did recording it. I'll be back at the end with my final thoughts. Eddie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Looking forward to a great conversation. I'm really excited and very happy to have you here for, for two reasons. You know, First and foremost is um, a few weeks back, I was talking to a friend of mine who's in law enforcement um, about the trial of Derek Chauvin and, and, and the murder of George Floyd. As I was sitting there talking to him, what I was thinking to myself is I wish everybody could hear this. I wish everybody could hear this conversation and understand what's going on in the minds of people in law enforcement when stories like that this hit the front page. And so I'm really interested in, in diving into your experience and, and your story and, and, and given everybody watching and everybody listening and understanding of that. Number two, and less important, I'm very happy to have you here because I understand, as we see, if you're watching the video, as you can see right behind you, you're an enormous fan of Luca Libre, correct? Yes, sir. A big fan of Lucha Libre, wrestling, Roman Groco, any type of wrestling, yeah. Well, didn't you have some involvement locally in the, in the Lucha scene or, or no? Yeah, so, so, no, no, you're, you're right. So in 2000, uh, 2004, uh, I accidentally... Uh, started and opened a independent Lucha Libre association known as the <laughs> Alliance of Lucha Libre Wrestling El Paso. Uh, and that was just a mere fluke. Uh, I did not intend to do that. I had a friend who had a ballroom. He uh-huh. wasn't getting any, any any traction into the ballroom. It was new. Yeah. And I jokingly said, hey, well, I know. Let's just throw a wrestling show, get some some traffic in there. And he's like, how do you do that? I said, I don't know. But I had a friend who was a luchador in Juarez. 
Uh-huh. So I said, hey, man, I want to do a Lucha show at this ballroom. How do I do it? Well, next thing you know, we put this wrestling, sh- this Lucha Libre show together. Uh-huh. Uh, we had about 350 people show up uh, to the to the first show. And then uh, the ballroom sits 500 people. We had uh, about 350 show up. At the yeah. end of the at the end of the show, everyone's asking me when the next show's going to be, and I just said next Sunday without thinking. Uh-huh. And ten years later, uh, you know, we ran for about ten years from 2005 to about 2015. Um, yeah, and uh, I was the Vince, the local Vince McMahon. Yeah, I have to say that is quite an accident, Eddie. Yeah, it really was. It wasn't my intention. I mean, I've always been a fan, but that wasn't my intention, and. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of accidents. I've never accidentally started in uh, a semi-professional wrestling league in my town. So thumbs up. Well, well done. Uh, you know, I have, a, I have a friend who is a huge Lucha fan, huge fan of Lucha and would actually fly to Mexico City just to see the matches. You, you may or may not remember some of the some of the folks in like the W what was the WWF, which was before the WWE. But, you know, right. There was always like whoever the U.S. was kind of fighting with was always the bad guy. So we had like right. Nikolai Volkov who represented Russia, and then we had the Iron Sheik. Iron who, Sheik. Yeah, he was. I don't know exactly who he was, where he was from. Uh, but Iran. So, Iran was that where he was? Okay, mm-hmm. that would make sense. So he goes down to Mexico City. This is a few years back, and he's standing there in the crowd, and everybody just starts booing. Right. And so, you know, the bad guy's walking in. Right. <laughs> it's this dude. I think he had like an American flag bandana on and an American flag with a picture of Donald Trump on it and was just waving it around, you know, just taunting the crowd. And, you know, we're we're always first off. And I probably should have told you this, Eddie. And I and I say this to to the audience as well. You know, we we have a very wide and varied audience from folks in the green party to uh, MAGA hat wearing uh, Republicans from, you know, all and, and everyone in between. And I always like to make sure that I let everybody of all political stripes understand this is a place to come and learn about issues and not have to worry about how you vote or not feel like you can't. Because well, how I, you pre- vote. I appreciate that. That's yeah. the way it should be. You know? Yeah. yeah. That being said, I'm not surprised that the American was the bad guy, <laughs> you know, just like base, 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 and we won't get into, we won't get into current events, but I will say we, we made a pretty convenient vil, villain for uh, Lucha Libre. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, one of our, one of our biggest heels was the, um, was agent ice and, and, uh, and yeah. uh, border patrol. We had characters that uh, we played in our Lucha Libre show and they were the bad guys. And we had the dirty, we had the dirty white boy and then um, Hurricane Hector, who was the leader of, 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 uh, of uh, oh, my God, I can't remember the team's name. But anyway, it was a Border Patrol agent and it was a customs agent. That, that was their mask design. And Hurricane Hector was their manager. And he would come out just taunting Mexicans about green cards and throwing out tortillas and, and stuff like this. And this was back in 2005. So this was, you know, this dates back to, you know, even prior to Trump and stuff, but it was, it was a lot of fun. You know, it was all in haste. Unfortunately, if we tried doing that nowadays, you know, we'll get canceled or something. So I don't know. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. I guess to start things off, can you just tell everybody a little bit about, you know, where you grew up, how you grew up and what sort of uh, pulled you to, law enforcement 
Yeah. So, you know, I was, uh, I was born in El Paso, Texas. Um, your stereotypical underdog, you know, born to a single parent, uh, with an eighth grade education. She was a garment worker worked, you know, in the factories, you know, usually worked two or three jobs to keep a roof over our head. Uh, never really saw her cause she was always busy working. Um, I, I was actually raised by my grandmother and that's how I learned how to speak El Espanol, you know? Um, so I was raised by her. I always joke around with people. Don't ask me to do manly things like, you know, change the oil or put up some drywall or anything like that. But hey, I can cook, I can iron, I can sew a shirt and I can clean, you know. Um, so uh, technically, I was born on the wrong side of the tracks. You know, we were on the poor side. Uh, always considered the underdog. It wasn't supposed to accomplish much because, uh, you know, the being the single parent and uh, without an education and my future didn't look so great. Um, I guess, you know, having to hear that over and over, I, I, I made a, a decision at an early age that I was going to not overachieve, but become somebody and, you know, at, at whatever cost it took. So, you know, I uh, joined, uh, I finished, you know, finished high school, played football, um, you know, joined the sheriff's office here in El Paso, spent 20 years with them, rose all the way to the uh, chief deputy level, which is uh, number two in command. 20 years later, I retired, became the chief of police at Hector County Independent School District for a short while before becoming the chief of police in a very racially divided community in East Texas for three years, where I created the No Colors, No Labels initiative and in 2017 was awarded the Martin Luther King Humanitarian of the Year Award. Have a master's degree currently working on a PhD, which I hope I'm completing by March of next year in criminal justice and public service leadership. Um, wrote a book, uh, been an entrepreneur, talked about the wrestling. I've had, I've owned uh, three different restaurants. I currently own America's best strategic security group and uh, living through adversity. So yeah, I mean, it, it's been an exciting life. And, and, you know, people always tell me, it's like, don't you get tired? And I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, but you know what? And I, and then that work ethic comes from my mom is that I've always been doing, I always, I always said I was going to get educated, work hard. So I didn't have to work as hard as my mom, but it turns out that I worked just as hard as she does. And I'm also an adjunct professor for a couple of universities and, you know, trying to be a father and a husband all at the same time is, uh, it's a little stressful sometimes. So every now and then we get a guest that I make the disclaimer, this person's going to make everybody feel bad and just feel like a total slacker. And you've, 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 you've fit the bill there. You mentioned two things, which I, which I want to get into. One was your time in El Paso, but the second is your time in Marshall, Texas. And they seem like very different experiences. For the yeah. folks who don't know El Paso, what was it like working there and, and what was the community like? Well, you know, um, you know, our, our here in El Paso, the mascot is is is, is uh, Amigo Man, which is a big son and his name's Amigo and Amigo translates to friend. And, you know, we're, we are known as, as the gateway to the, as one of the gateways to the United States. And uh, honestly, growing up here in El Paso, uh, a lot of, you know, we're a very friendly city. We're very diverse, very accepting, you know, uh, I think this new um, <clears throat> census is going to put us right at, right at or right under a million people. We border Suida Juarez, which is one of the most violent cities in the world um, in Mexico. Yet El Paso has constantly been ranked one, two or three safest city in the United States based on its population. Um, you know, we're, we're a very welcoming community. We're, we're very open. We're very uh, progressive uh, you know, we're home to Fort Bliss, which is one of the largest military institutions. So working in El Paso, you have every every social economic class from the very poor immigrant, you know, coming over illegally to, uh, you know, Paul Foster, one of the, you know, on the, on the Forbes richest 500 list, you know, multi-billionaire. So 
we deal with all, all sorts of stuff and we're very, we're very inviting. We're very family oriented and things like that. Very accepting law enforcement. You know, uh, we, we, we deal with it all. Of course, we're, we're one of the gateways and pathways to narcotics. You know, uh, a lot of people don't understand that the majority of narcotics are actually crossed through the international bridges. And we have six of them, five of them. Um, people always think, oh no, they get crossed through the, you know, the unprotected border. Well, no, that's not true. That's, that's, what gets crossed through there is the small amounts that they want you to catch so the big shipments can come through the international bridges. So, so when, I, when I retired in El Paso uh, and went on to Ector County and then went on to Marshall, uh, talk about a culture shock. Um, it was, uh, you know, Marshall, Texas, is a very racially divided community, and that's what I was hired to do was to bridge that gap. I always joke around about the fact that they, you know, they weren't going to hire another Caucasian male at the time, and they were never going to hire an African American. So they hired a caramel Mexican guy to <laughs> come in yeah. and, and try to bridge that gap. And we did a really great job uh, of bridging that gap, considering the racial tension. But we did it with the community. And I know we're going to get into the law enforcement aspect, but believe it or not, um, the mindset of the actual police department at that time in, in that community was just one of, that did not want to move forward and didn't uh, want to bridge that gap. So yeah, I had my work cut out for me. <laughs> Before we get into Marshall, there's, there's one thing I want to, I want to highlight here, which is last night I went on Google maps and I plotted the trip from El Paso to Marshall, Texas. And it's an 11 hour drive. So, you know, I'm from Massachusetts. I can't drive 11 hours in the state. <laughs> like I might be able to walk it maybe, but I certainly can't drive it. So, I have to ask, what was that conversation like with your wife? Like, well, you know, she was, um, you know, the whole option was for, you know, for us to move on and, and, and move my career and progress my career. So she was OK yeah. with it and stuff. Oh, of course, okay. you know, she realized that it was going to be hard um, for the family to come visit the family because we're very family oriented. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we made the drive uh, two times a year and then we flew in two times a year. So it was very well. But in my last job. Uh, where I was the state director for Oklahoma, it was only a 10, a 10 hour and 23 minute drive to go instead of going like this, because Marshall El Paso and Marshall were like this to yeah. go like this. It was only 10 hours and 32 minutes for me to drive from Oklahoma to El Paso. And that was a hard drive because I did that for two years, um, 1400 miles round trip. And uh, my family stayed in El Paso. So I would come in every other weekend to visit them. And yeah. that's when I, I was like, wow, this is this is not working for me. <laughs> yeah, this is where the gap between the folks listening west of the Mississippi and the folks listening east of the Mississippi becomes readily apparent because, you know, on, on the east, east of the Mississippi, if you drive 10 or 11 hours, you've gone through like 18 different states exactly. you know, at that point. Um, you have to try to go through two, you know, at, at west of the Mississippi. And and so you know, get, getting to Marshall then, first off, like what was the trigger event? Like why did they decide that it was important to bring somebody in to, to change the culture of policing there? Yeah, there was a lot of internal issues uh, between the city and the police department at that time, and uh, they realized that in order they wanted they wanted to progress. They they, they had just elected a uh, a progressive mayor, progressive council that wanted to to grow and 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 get out of that small town mentality. You know, for people that don't know the history, back in the day, 
uh, Marshall was designed to be what uh, Dallas, Texas is today. Um, it was that's the trajectory it was going, and it should have been. Had everything gone according to plan, Marshall would be what Dallas is today. Uh, unfortunately, the powers that be at that time made some decisions that didn't plan out that way. So uh, these new elected officials wanted to kind of reignite the the excitement and, and make Marshall, you know, known for better things other than the racial division that it had because of the sale of slaves and, and stuff like that back in the day. So, you know, when they had they had, you know, issues with the police department, the community and they had they figured it was time to bring somebody from a larger agency with a vision and a bigger mindset to to be able to evolve and, and change the department. So, you know, uh, I happened to have applied and, and I, I fit the bill of coming from a large organization. Um, I happened to be a minority. I happened uh, to, you know, my resume had talked about all the community things that I did here in El Paso, you know, the Haunted House, the um, National Night Out, the anti-bullying coalition that I established. So, you know, um, when they hired me, that was my, my, my uh, number one objective was to change the culture. The only mistake we made was that they wanted me to change the culture and they wanted to change today now, three days ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, impossible to change a culture that quickly, you know? Yeah. As we'll, I think we'll probably learn as we we get a little further, further into it. And, and now, so El Paso, to your point, almost a million people, very diverse. Marshall is like 23,000. Right, twenty-four, twenty-four thousand, and mainly Caucasian, right? Mainly Caucasian, yes. Got it, got it. And so, what was so you get in there, and you know, you, you you get a feel for the department. What were some of the things that jumped out at you that you felt needed to change the most? Uh, the mentality, the the lack of equipment, the lack of progressive. Uh, you know, we had an outdated report writing system. We didn't even have computers in the cars at the times, you know, which we call mobile dispatch terminals. We didn't even have MDTs in the vehicles, which you're like, like, how the heck do you not have an MDT in 2014 in the car? You know, still not not being able to generate. You should have seen the patrol car. They look like taxis, actually. They were outdated vehicles with logos. And the mentality was, well, we don't want people to know that the police are here. We want to be stealth mode. And it's like, no. And I remember the first thing I did when I got there was I changed the logos, the logo of the of the vehicles and the design. And the very first complaint that they got uh, about me was that the citizens were complaining, wondering how much their taxes were going to go up with all the new police officers I hired. And I'm <laughs> like, yeah, I didn't hire We haven't hired anybody. What are you talking about? But now the police car had this 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 ice, ice blue logo it said police and all of this stuff in the car now stood out. Yeah. What what was the logic behind stealth mode? Because everything I've heard is, you know, police presence or visibility is a huge deterrent. It, it, it's an old school mentality, you know, stealth mode. We, we, we sneak up on people. They're committing a crime. We catch them in the act. Well, you know, 21st century policing mindset, it, it, the model is, you know, police presence, police, you see the vehicle, you know, it, that the, the vehicle alone, just being able to see it is your first line of defense. You know, it's your first, it, 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 it deescalates every, or it should deescalate things. But it's like I'm saying, that just gives you an example of the mindset of the agency at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you go ahead, you, you update the computer systems, you change the design of the squad cars. 
how is the how are your colleagues? How's the how are the people on the force dealing with all this? Well, you know, considering that you know they they had they had their own trajectory plan of oh well this guy's going to be next and this going he's going to make this guy the assistant chief and he's going to do this. Well, when they hired me, their plans kind of got ruined. So I had already started coming in from an outs. You know, they brought me in as an outsider, brought me in as a minority, the first minority chief to ever lead the organization. Oh, here comes, you know, it, the mindset was, oh, here comes this wannabe hotshot from a, a huge town who's going to tell us. It was basically like the city slicker versus versus the country, country mentality, you know? Yeah. As I've always said, you know, about Marshall, it's been my biggest, uh, my greatest accomplishment. And also it's been my biggest failure. And, and the reason I say that is, is because, you know, I was able to change the community mindset but I just couldn't get the officer's mindset. We were, it was kind of like mixing water with oil. But you had a meaningful impact on crime there, from my understanding. You know, we, we lowered crime by 20%. We reduced homicide. I, I remember we were on task uh, for one year to go with zero homicides through our predictive policing comp stats. And on December, on December 24, 20, December 22nd, as I was driving to El Paso, one of my captains calls me and says, we just had a homicide and it was, we had one homicide that year. And I was like, man, just five, six days. And we would have had a first ever one you know, year without any homicides. And I think it was really due to the different um, community programs we were doing. We had, in, we had just, uh, I had introduced a predictive based policing and Comstat policing and, and it was working. And again, to, 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 frame this for folks too. You know, we're talking about a community of 24,000 people. So one homicide is still, uh, a, a, you know, like, or, or, or having more than one homicide is a, is a fairly substantial, uh, event, I think well, in a community, community of that size, you know, for a community of 24, when the average homicide rate is anywhere between six and nine, that's a lot of homicides. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. So when you bring it down to one or zero, you know, it, it's, it's a great accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I want to get, I definitely, I, I want to get into the conversation, the, the conversation around policing today. And there's something you said that I'm, I'm really interested in digging into, which is you talk about 21st century policing and can you, can you maybe do a contrast? So what would, what would have been 20th century policing and what do you feel 21st century policing is? So 20th century policing is the old John Wayne adage, kick butt, take names later, shoot them first, ask questions later. 21st century policing is de-escalation, wellness, uh, prosperity, um, procedural justice, uh, fairness, equality, things like that. Especially when people talk about police reform and when people talk about, uh, people use phrases like defund the police, for example. And in, in, I'll ask for your, you know, for you to confirm or deny this or, or correct me on this. But, you know, in my mind, from all I've gathered, it seems like law enforcement's a very, very local thing. And so it's very, very difficult to say there is one thing wrong with every police department in the United States of America because everybody does things differently. And I think to, to your point, you know, El Paso and Marshall function very differently and have very different cultures. So, you know, I, I guess when, when folks are looking at this, this issue, do you feel, is it fair to say that it really is, is, is something that's that's more local facing 
and and the problems have more of a local solution than some broad brush painted across the country or no am i totally wrong there yeah no no you absolutely you know it's funny you bring up a really good point because you know i've had the opportunity to you know to lead organizations in one two three three different cities in texas and then i led an organization in a different state of oklahoma and when you try to copy the recipe that you did in every one of those places it doesn't blend well because it it is very local. Everybody has their own different issues, their own different concerns. And the biggest thing is the culture. You know, that's the biggest culture. The only thing that I have found in law enforcement that 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 resonates across the board from California to New York and you know, all up and down, north and south, is is the fact that the only two things that law enforcement uh, agrees on is that they hate change and <laughs> they hate the way things are. Okay. Uh, that is the only common denominator that I have found. However, you know, when you talk about when you talk about defunding the police and police reform and stuff like that, people need to realize that 99.4% of law enforcement officers are good guys. Mm-hmm. We're, 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 in, we're in this because we care about our community. We're in this because we really want to do a good job. None of us got into this business uh, on the claim of becoming rich because uh, that never happened. I think. I think. I think. In the two years that I've been uh, a sole proprietor with my own LLC, I've made more money than I did in twenty-seven. You know, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, but, but you know where I'm going with it. So yeah, um, you know, there, there's that. There's it's it's that point six percent of, of of officers that just give us a bad name and make us look bad. Now, is police reform needed? Absolutely. I mean, every, and I hate to sound like this guy, but every process in the United States is systematically broken. Mm-hmm. Um, education. I mean, let's take education, for instance. I mean, you know, I'm, I told you I was working on a PhD. I mean, I'm, I'm in debt up to my eyeballs in student loans. Yeah. You know, I'm never going to recoup the money. I'm never going to get my, my return on investment uh, at my age and, and what I plan on doing with it. Um, and the universities right now are hurting because they're losing out to trade schools. And now Google has even started their own Google um, um, certificate program that, uh, that, that, that institutions are working with. But universities have basically priced themselves out of the market. Yeah. When you go to law enforcement, you, you do, you've done the same thing. You know, it's a system that needs to be, you know, fixed. The criminal justice system was written and designed at a time uh, that is not comparable to the time that we live in now. 40% folks. That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition, and in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one. If you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation. And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, 
visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. You know, one of the things that we, that, that I've kind of revisited a lot on this show lately is the concept of programming and the idea that, you know, societies and countries and governments all, and even people for that matter, you know, we all function on a set of programming, a set of habits that just executes until somebody stops it. And so to your point, you know, I, I'd agree. I think those systems are always going to be imperfect and there's always going to be a need for us to pause and say, Hey, you know, why are we doing it this way? Should we? And that goes across the board. And, you know, another thing I'd, I'd want to build on and maybe ask you about is, you know, when, when I look at society in general, and, and when I look at, you know, especially as the issue of, of police reform has come to like, has come to the forefront. You know, the thing I notice is that we ask law enforcement to do a lot that we're not willing to do ourselves in the sense of, you know, great example is, you know, mental health care, right? We we're not willing as a society to fund mental health care, but we're willing to fund the police to an extent to take care of it. We're not willing to invest extra money in social services. I mean, my wife and I had a foster, had two foster kids, right? Mm-hmm. And it really gave me a look into how criminality develops because we, in my, and now I'm going on a rant, Eddie, so you're just going to have to forgive me here. But, no you know, what I see we do, and this is especially with kids, is, you know, what I see we do is we sort of like warehouse them until they're 18 and then it's society's problem. Oh yeah. And, and, and so I, I feel like there, you know, there, there's so much that we just put out into society that law enforcement has to take care of. And, and I, I think to, you know, certainly there are instances where you can focus on policing and say this needs to be fixed. But the other part of that equation is, you know, we also have to look at like, how are we creating these criminals? What are we doing as a society and what we can do to prevent that? And I'm interested in your thoughts on that. I mean, do you feel like we're asking law enforcement to just clean up messes we're not interested in in touching? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it seems like every time an issue comes up and we don't know where to place it, well, give it to law enforcement, they'll fix it. And, you know, they give us the problem, but we're not trying to fix it. Then they don't give us the funding to fix it. You brought up a great one, mental health. And I love the way you said it. It's about warehousing because with mental health issues, that's basically what we do. You know, we have to go out and respond to mental health episodes and issues. And there's no men, there's no facilities. to. T- I mean, there's very limited facilities where you can take these people to get help. So if you can't get them help, what do you do with them? Well, you throw them in jail, you throw them in jail. And we don't know how to deal with their mental episodes. So what do we do? The jail uh, doctor gives them prescriptions, puts them to sleep and makes them go to sleep. Um, that's not how you handle a problem. Same thing with the drug epidemic. You know, we, we've got this war on drugs. And instead of 
actually touching bases with the issue, which is the economic disparity that exists through across the United States. We want to attack, you know, let's get the drug addict who's out there, you know, on, on meth or heroin, throw him in jail. Okay. So he cleans up while he's in jail, but we haven't addressed the problem. Then we throw him back out on the street, him or her, they can't get a job because now they've got a criminal record. They've got a drug problem. The drug problem turns into a mental issue, mental health issue because yeah, there, there was some sort of mental health issue that began with it led you to go to the drugs. Could it have been depression, low self-esteem, whatever? There's something chronic there. So you've compounded all these problems um, and said, well, go ahead, law enforcement, you take care of it because we don't want to deal with it and we don't want to talk about it and we don't want to touch it. It's your problem. But then when we do when, when we don't you know, we don't handle the, the problem the way society feels it should be handled, then we're the bad guys. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of like, you know, getting, getting back to the whole issue of programming and the whole issue of how we function, you know, and even kind of touching on what you said about, you know, the John Wayne 20th century policing. Um, it's kind of like our approach has always been, well, let's just throw more force at it. You know, let's throw, let's put more, let's put more police on the streets. Let's equip them with you know, let's, let's give them more equipment. Let's give them all the things necessary to, to uh, enter into a situation when things get to their worst without necessarily thinking about like, how do we keep that from happening? And, 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 and I feel like that's a huge, I mean, that's a, that's, that, that is not discussed enough as part of it. Um, You know, another question I have for you is, you know, the, and getting back to something I mentioned earlier is, you know, the issue of, 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 and I don't even want to call it police reform because I figure because I feel it's bigger than that, but that's kind of how it's been couched. So I'm going to use that term, you know, that issue is such a, it's, it's such a contentious issue. And I'm, I'm interested, how does, how did law, how does law enforcement feel you know, or what does it look like from the perspective of folks in law enforcement when you have people out in the streets protesting um, over, like, we'll, we'll use the death of George Floyd as an example. You know, what's, what's the, what's, how, how do people on the force feel, feel about that? Well, you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> that, that's a really hard question to answer because you yeah. have people who have my mentality and my mindset, and then you have other people who, who believe that, you know, the ends justify the means, you know, which in reality is not the truth. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's sad to see things escalate, you know, to the point that, you know, the death of Mr. Floyd was something that should have never happened. Yeah. You know, the officer that caused the death or the officers that caused the death, well, the officer that caused the death, the Baton one. Yeah. Yeah. He had been, he had been terminated two times from the agency. Okay, and this is where the biggest issue comes into hand is when you tie the police chief's hands, for instance, you know, I know I've had my hands tied because of of uh, of of, um, civil service uh, rights. The union, right? I've had the issues with the union because, you know, and and, and the good off, there's nothing worse. And this is what this is what's so sad is that there's nothing worse than will draw a good employee away from you. That is tolerating a bad employee. So if we keep tolerating these bad employees, all the good officers are going to go away and we're going to be filled with nothing but the bad employees. Right. Now, I've had I've had good, good conversations with the unions and we've done some good things. But Mm -hmm. I think that um, 
one of the major things that needs to happen is that police chiefs and unions really need to work together, form mm-hmm. a partnership, a bond together that, yes, while their job is to protect the rights of, of people, of, of, their, of their employees, it should also be their right to protect the good officers from the bad officers who give us yeah. those bad images. And we should work together to, to rid ourselves of those bad employees, you know, mm-hmm. now, not, not one, you know, there's a difference between, you know, an officer going out and, and getting arrested for, for public intoxication and then getting reprimanded and the union comes in and says, Hey, you know what? He's going through a divorce. He had a rough time. He's human. Okay. You know, you get a slap on the wrist, a, su- a couple of suspension days, but when you have excessive use of force on someone who technically went out there and, and, and deliberately used excessive force, and then here they come and, and protect them because they're a member, then that's when we have a problem. Yeah. Know? So, I mean, Oh, go on. Sorry. I cut no, no. You off. no, I was just going to say, you know, so that's, that's one of the major problems is that how do we feel about it? Well, the good employees, the good officers feel horrible because you tie our hands because now city leadership gets involved. You know, for instance, um, after the Floyd uh, incident, you know, uh, uh, city mayors and city managers were telling the police chief how to operate and how to run his police agency. Well, what does a city manager and a mayor know about running the police department? That's why you hired the police chief and mm-hmm. you're telling them to stand down. And there has to come a point in a place where leadership has to be given the opportunity to take a stand and know the difference between anarchy and, and lawlessness to upholding you know the decency of of the law you know yeah yeah you know and and the perspective i got and again my perspective is entirely from from uh boston area from massachusetts and you know for for a, a city the size of boston we have relatively low levels of violent crime um generally the 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 incidents where police have to use force or have to use violence is less than um, in other cities. And so, you know, the perspective I got really from, you know, the folks I've talked to is that, you know, in, at, and again, speaking locally, you know, we're, we, we run a good operation here and yes, there are problems. Yes. There are things that can be fixed, but we don't necessarily want to be painted as the same person you're seeing on a cell phone video, uh, you know, using, uh, you know, again, we don't want to be painted as the, the same person you see on a cell phone video, who's using excessive force, who's discharging a firearm when they shouldn't. And, and I, I think it kind of gets back to the whole issue of, of it being maybe more local and, and, and for us really, I think for us, like, as, you know, I don't know if civilians are the right word, but for those not in law enforcement to understand that, you know, each department's different and, uh, and, 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 and really in a lot of cases, these, these, these bad actors are, 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 aren't necessarily reflective, I think, of the profession as a whole. Um, you know, something else, though, I, I wanted to ask you was about, you know, do you feel like, again, if we look at maybe one reform, like one thing, do you feel like there could, that, that taking us, taking a look at the taking a look at the ability to hire and fire officers and giving more of that power to the to the to the to the police chief do you feel like that would have a meaningful impact it, it would i mean look i i um, i support the unions I, I i i'm not saying unions are bad you know the unions i've never personally had to use one um 
and they have a job to do and they have a mission to do and, and that's and, and they do a great job but I do believe that we need to find a way to get the police chief the authority to you know when when he has when he has enough proof to show that this officer needs to be terminated for cause you know whether it be for excess of force or you know a drug problem or whatever that person that police chief needs to be allowed to have the opportunity to to fire and terminate that person and let it stand as a termination period you know um but when you have um you know, arbitrators overtraining it, or for instance, in small towns, I mean, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, one of your police, one of your police officers could be the brother-in-law or the brother of the city manager, you know? Yeah. Um, so how's that going to go when you fire him? You know, and, you know, yeah. right now the life expectancy of a police chief across the country is one to two years. I mean, that, that, that is insane. You know, mm -hmm. you, you know, there is actively over 150 police chief search jobs, searches going on for police chiefs right now because everybody's leaving the, in, you know, the, the industry, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what I'm saying is that as long as you keep uh, tolerating the bad employees and not letting the police chiefs do. Now, I'm not saying that all police chiefs are going to do the right thing because there's some rogue police chiefs out there as well. Mm -hmm. um, but you know what? That's when you look at the totality of the circumstances. And I really do believe that if, if the unions would work with the police chief in conjunction together to say what's in the best interest of the organization and the community that we serve, yeah. not what's in the best interest of this one person. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like from what you're telling me, then, when one of these issues goes to arbitration, the arbitrators are very much on the side of the officer and not necessarily looking at the bigger picture. Am I right there or no? For the majority, I mean, you, you've got arbitrators that are, you know, that are that are very well-rounded arbitrators, and, and and we'll see to the, you know, we'll we'll see the big picture. And then you have arbit. It's just like everything else. It's it's the luck of the draw. I mean, you know, like in arbitrations, you know, the police chief and the union, they have a list of arbitrators, and they all go by and they strike one until they find the one that, well, it could go our way or it could go your way. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it just so happens that, you know, sometimes we present a better case, they present a better case and the person stays on, but the arbitrator's ruling is binding, you know, and, and, and you just got to live with it. I appreciate this conversation, especially because I understand, like, I'm, I'm asking you to, to answer some very like sensitive questions around, law enforcement. And I appreciate you being so open with me on this because it is a, I think it's a tough subject to talk about. And, you know, there, I know there are a lot of folks like me, for example, who feel that you can't expect law enforcement to be any more or any less racist than the rest of society as a whole. And that a lot of the issues that we see, a lot of the issues that we see when it comes to you know, racial profiling or, you know, the disproportionate effect of the, the criminal justice system on, on people of color. You know, a lot of those issues, some of those issues that we see are really just the result of, of I think, a society um, that has some problems to deal with. And, and on the same token, you know, a lot of times to express that or to ask questions and to 
And to really look to solve it, a lot of times it kind of puts you, it, it can feel like it puts you on the opposite side of law enforcement because, you know, there are folks who are not in law enforcement, but um, feel they're supporting them by sort of shutting down the conversation. And, right. you know, that's, that's my perspective on it. You know, that's, that's kind of how I feel. And, and so I've got kind of two questions, which is, you know, number one, does that match your perspective of things? And then number two, to all those people out there who feel like the issue of racial justice is a problem, but also either have friends, family and law enforcement and, and don't want to enter the minefield of trying to be a meaningful part of the solution do you have any advice for them on how they can approach it in a way that both acknowledges some of the structural problems we have as a society, but also doesn't necessarily put law enforcement on the opposite end or put law enforcement as the root of those problems? What would bring unity to everything is that, look, we need, you know, for instance, okay, let's talk about this one. You know, there's a lot of controversy right now about the Black Wall Street, the Tulsa incident. Yeah, uh, we don't talk about it. It's never discussed. You know that I didn't know about the Tulsa incident. I'm 48 years old and I didn't know about the Tulsa incident until two years ago when I when I got hired in Oklahoma and was told about it. And I was like, uh, wow. And I yeah. consider myself a pretty smart guy. And I didn't know anything about it. I had heard stuff about it, but it never really caught my attention. Well, why don't we talk about it? It's a part of history. It's something that happened. Why don't we talk about it so we don't repeat the same mistake? Now, when we talk about racism, I think we do need to come to the table and, and admit, yes, every human being, and you can sit here and say, I'm not racist. Every human being has some inherited uh, uh, discord or dislike to, towards someone or something, you know, and, and how do we get over those biases by talking about them? You know, we, we sit down and we talk about it. And I know the reason I know I, I say this because it works because I did it in Marshall with no colors, no labels. OK, we, we came together. We sat at the table. We talked. And that's what procedural justice talks about. That's one of, you know, century 20, 21st century policing. It, it talks about that and it talks about being treated. You know, the golden rule procedural justice is a fancy title to describe the golden rule. And what's the golden rule? You learned it in kindergarten. Treat others the way you want to be treated period. And, you know, if we would just sit at the table and have these this open discussions of why we disagree, why we don't agree, how we can fix this, how we can do that, we would be able to accomplish so much more, you know? Yeah. And, and the other thing too, I'll add to that is it, it means you actually have to talk to people. It doesn't feel natural to talk about it. You know, you're taught not to talk about it. Right. And so, Sometimes you just have to push through that discomfort and be honest, but also listen. Exactly. Well, you know, and, and that's the funny thing is, you know, that's another funny thing is that why is it that we accept all of this? It's because we're in our comfort zone. So in order to succeed, what do you have to do? You have to get out of your comfort zone. You have to have the pressure. You have to have those tough conversations, those things, you know, and, and, and that's, that's the one thing is that, you know what, historically, I have a reputation of, 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 you know, sometimes being a jerk, sometimes being this and that. It's just that it's no, you know what? I'm a police leader who has an obligation to protect the community that I was sworn to protect. And I have to do what's right. 
And, and one of the things that has gotten away from society is that, you know, for instance, let's just say you're the new leader of, 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 of this organization. I can sit here and say, hmm, Dan, do I like Dan? Is he a good leader? Wow, he's got a hell of a resume. He's done a hell of a, a lot of things. Well, let me see what I can get away with with Dan. And then I come around and I start poking and I start trying to see what you're going to let me get away with. But then you put your foot down and you say, you know what? Enough. We're not going to tolerate this behavior. Knock it off. Huh. Well, Dan doesn't benefit me. Hey, guys, Dan's a horrible leader. Dan doesn't know what he's doing. Well, why do you say that? Well, look at the decisions he makes. Well, what decision has he made? Well, look at it. And you start playing. And unfortunately, I hate to get into this because I don't want to get into the politics. But then you start getting into the big lie. You know, I mean, we've seen a big lie in effect right now. And we start creating a perception of Dan. By one person, I start creating this perception. Dan's a horrible leader. Before you know it, I got two people believing it, four people eight people, 10 people, 12 people. And before you know it, I have the whole organization saying that Dan can't lead this organization. Not because, but just because of my influence over the other people, because I just happen to be popular and people are going to believe what I say about you. So leadership has, has really disintegrated because of people's perception on judging leadership based on belief of what they can benefit out of that leader as opposed to his leadership abilities for the entire organization. Yeah. And again, if your hands are tied as far as who can be and who can work in your organization, that makes it even more challenging because I know in a lot of roles, a new leader comes on, you don't like the leader. You can, you know, you're going to go and find a new leader at another job, you know? Exactly. Um, but in your case, you don't have that option, or in your case, you didn't at least. Right. I mean, you know, you're 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 you know, you come in from the outside, you're appointed. You know, you don't have the luxury. You know, I was a finalist in, in a major city uh, just recently, and what I was, I was, I was like, wow, this is going to be a great opportunity because I was going to be allowed had I got in the position to bring in six of my own people. Um, you know, but when you take on most of these op- these jobs. You go in and, and, and for instance, my last job in Oklahoma as the state director, I came in again, messed up the trajectory of, of the of the the ladder of ascension, ascension that they had created for themselves. All of a sudden I came in and they're like, but now I'm 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 ha- I'm forced to work with the guy with the two top guys that were also in the running for my job who didn't get the job. And I'm an outsider. So you think they're going to work with me? I think part of the nature of good leadership is really delivering news people don't want to hear. We tend to gravitate to people who tell us what we want to hear. And we're not like, we're not, I I think about some of the, you know, I think about some of like the, the great presidents of the past, the people who like identified a challenge and said, this is what we're doing. And sometimes it didn't mean life was comfortable for everybody. I mean, you think about FDR who was reelected twice. You know, the, I mean, there were, they were rationing food. You know, there was, a, there was a lot of hardship that this country had to endure. Um, do you think, have we just become like an unleadable population, do you think? Or, absolutely. Or, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, let, let me tell you, you know what? Look, uh, I've led 
five organizations, uh, major organizations. I've led, uh, you know, three successful businesses. I'm currently the leader and CEO of two successful businesses. Um, I'm working on a PhD on leadership. Yet I've had people tell me I don't know the first thing about leadership. And and when you come, it's like, okay, well, well tell me why you don't disagree. Well, because you once told me no. So because I told you, no, I'm a terrible leader because I held you accountable. I'm a bad leader because I, I told you something you didn't like. I'm a terrible leader. Yes. Wow. So you, your, 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 your definition of leadership is totally obscure. And I think that people want to be led by people who have the same beliefs, the same likes and want to hear what they want to be told. You know, I mean, for instance, you know, um, you know, you look at a lot of the consp- a lot of the theories and conspiracy theories that people are gravitating to nowadays. It's because they feel comfortable with what's being said. The rhetoric. I mean, you can sit there and prove them wrong all day long with the facts and the data. People are not concerned with facts and data. They're concerned with what makes me feel good. You know, and when you're put in a leadership position, I have this saying that you know what, leaders, you know, weren't put in leadership positions to be liked. They were put there to lead the organization and move it forward or move people forward and create people. But if the leader himself wants to be liked, then he needs to go sell ice cream because everybody likes the ice cream salesman guy, you know? Yeah. 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 And I don't, and I don't know how we, uh, how we unwind that because that seems to be as much of a problem with people's expectations as it does the people who seek positions of leadership. Yep. It's tough. And I mean, that's what, you know, one of my, one, you know, leading through adversity, one of my leader, which is my leadership development company, that, that's what we aim to do is, is we try to prepare and strive leaders for what leadership is really about. And leadership yeah. is about doing the right thing, because it's the right thing to do. Not the popular thing, but the right thing to do. And it has to benefit the majority of the people in the organization. What would you so for the folks listening, who aren't in law enforcement, don't know anybody in law enforcement well, you know, don't have regular conversations with folks in law enforcement, what would you like them to understand about the job? We're human. We make mistakes. Um, yeah, that's not an excuse. That's not an excuse to say, oh, I made a mistake. You know, I, I killed somebody and I shouldn't have. What I'm saying is that while, yes, we're held to a very higher standard, you know, realize this, we're human, you know, and you hold us in law enforcement to a very high standard. But think about this. Think about this. When I first started my career, I received six months of training before I was given a badge and a gun and told to go enforce the law. Six months of training. Would you let a heart surgeon operate on your heart with six months of training? So, you know, one of the things that we really do need to change is the training and education of law enforcement officers. But where's the first thing people will cut money on is training and education of law enforcement officers. I think we have to stop looking at law enforcement as the solution for all of society's problems. Everybody loves to talk about how, you know, the government could spend money on X, Y, and Z. And certainly they could. Certainly, there are lots of things that are underfunded that, uh, you know, we brought up mental health care, we brought up education. But the, the second part, too, is, you know, there's nothing stopping an individual from bettering the situation. 
you know, there's nothing stopping any, any of us from taking an hour or two out of our week to address one of those issues ourselves. And so I think there's a little bit of getting off the couch we have to do. Um, you know, number two, I think the the other thing that you, you brought up is just in terms of structural uh, issues around law enforcement, it's the ability for police chiefs to, or for chiefs of police to uh, have greater influence over who works under the department. And number two, more training as well. That book again is Unmasking Leadership, What They Don't Tell You, and it can be pre-ordered on leadingthroughadversity.com. I will also have a link in the show notes on the website. Just go to ydhty.com, click episodes in the upper right-hand corner, and you shall receive. And if you like this episode, please share it with all your friends, neighbors, relatives, and enemies. Leave it a review. And if you are not a subscriber, this is your invitation to do so. Just click that follow or subscribe button and get a piping hot episode of YDHTY delivered to those earbuds every Thursday at 2 a.m. Eastern Time. Now, the number one takeaway I got from this is the role the union has in making it difficult to get rid of bad police officers. And we see this in our public school as well, where often underperforming teachers are protected by union rules. And I am not anti-union by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think rethinking labor relations in the public sector could go a long way to improving the quality of the services we get. And it's something we're going to have to dive into because you might remember uh, a few weeks back the episode we did with Dan McCrory, who talked about how labor leadership often encouraged a contentious relationship with management and actually made things more difficult for the frontline workers as a result. Now, one other thing I want to bring up is I'm going to be releasing a bonus episode as a follow-up to this one, because there's something I did during the interview that I really wasn't happy about, and I wanted to get Eddie back on to get a chance to correct the record. So we'll be recording that actually on the day of this episode's release, so look out for that in the not-too-distant future. As always, mute it. Music. Music is courtesy of Norway's Fellertak. YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. I could pronounce that, but not music. YDHTY is produced in North Carolina, United States of America by the big Gino himself, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Oh, bye-bye.